More than 800 games. Eight seasons. Ten years. That's the tenure in Charleston of the second radio voice in West Virginia power history, Adam Marco. Replacing Andy Barch in 2010, Adam basically did just about everything one could do with a team in minor league baseball. From broadcasting, to sales, to marketing, to even singing the national anthem or take me out to the ball game, Adam left an unforgettable mark on the capital city. He also got to experience some incredible talent during the Pittsburgh Pirates affiliation era, which resonated with Adam, as he has quite the affinity for that major league club. From Gregory Polanco to Jamison Tyone, Adam witnessed quite the wave of Pirates stars make their way through West Virginia, and he was tasked with telling their stories, something he treasured, especially when he was shown how much some of those players respected and cared for him. Those moments, along with many others, made his eight-year stint in Charlie West well worth it. If we were to ask Adam about every remarkable thing that occurred during his time in Charleston, we'd have to turn this podcast into an audiobook. So, we settled for almost an hour of reminiscing on some of his fondest memories, favorite players, and a whole lot more. From a socially distant minimum of six feet away, let's get into part two of our Power Broadcaster Look Back series, right here on Expanding the Grid. And welcome back to another episode of Expanding the Grid, episode number 14 and part two of our broadcaster series. We look back to the former voices of the West Virginia Power, talked to Andy Bullbarch last week, and now joining us on the phone and on the podcast is the most recent former voice of the West Virginia Power and the current voice of the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, Adam Marco. Adam, thanks for jumping on here. Certainly a pleasure. It is great to hear your voice. I hope all the power fans are doing well as best you possibly can these days. Absolutely. We certainly hope you all are, uh, are doing well in Scranton and, and that all the uh, Rail Riders front office staff and, and your family is, is doing well as well. Let's go, let's kind of start there uh, with this, this whole coronavirus thing that's been going around for a while. How are you and, and the rest of uh, your, your family and your, and your pet family holding up? Cause I know you have six, you have six pets, correct? Two dogs and four cats. We do. And so far, uh, so good. My parents live in the Pittsburgh area. I've got a sister that lives out near Sacramento, uh, another sister that lives right by my parents. My wife's family is just east of Pittsburgh, and sister-in-law lives down in Virginia. So like a lot of people, spread out right now and trying to do the best we can and you know, take it day by day, week by week. Uh, remember what day it is as I get up each day. I think I've only lost track one time so far <laughs> in the last month. And the rail riders, I mean, we're doing, we're doing okay. I mean, I don't know if anybody's doing great right. right now. I think okay is the best a lot of us can be. We've been working from home for a couple of weeks now. I'm very proactive about shutting our office down and, taking steps to ensure that everyone on our staff stays safe. And, you know, certainly that's, uh, that's the key right now. I went out to the grocery store on a Thursday night, bought a couple of weeks worth of groceries, not something we would typically do, but you're seeing long lines at the grocery store. You're, you're doing everything you can to make sure you're staying safe. I've, I've cut out my coffee run uh, in the morning, you know, things like that, that 
and, and other, at the grocery store, I even yelled at my wife. Like, she picked up a package of something and put it back down. I'm like, no, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you, you want that? You want that chicken or not? It doesn't matter. You touched it. It's ours now. Like, I don't. I don't know if that's the way it really works. It's, it's probably not, but I, I certainly hope that we get this gone as quickly as possible. As we get through this as soon as we possibly can. Yes, you and I and fans at Appalachian Power Park want baseball to return. I'd settle for life returning right now and baseball following a day or two after that. Certainly could not agree more. And I know, you know, a lot of people, your, yourself, myself, and all fans included, have been kind of reminiscing and looking back on fond memories of seasons past. And for you, you spent eight years here in Charleston as the voice of the West Virginia Power, 10 years total, because I know you were working traffic reports before that. Uh, you know, let, let's go all the way back to when you first moved to Charleston. What was it that brought you here to the capital city? My wife, actually. She went to WVU for law school, and after my first season in baseball, 2007, at Williamsport, she had just finished her third year in law school and got a clerkship for Judge Copenhaver at the federal courthouse in Charleston. So my season ended that September of 2007. We loaded up a U-Haul, and for the first time we had moved in, lived together, uh, at that point, we had been dating for seven years, and we were still a year away from me proposing. She moved us to Charleston, and I worked for WCHS. I was the traffic guy for a while. I went out to Oklahoma City, reinstated in Charleston. She moved us to Richmond, and then I had the opportunity in December of 2010, 2009, December of 2009, to interview with Andy Milovich and then got the power job and moved us back to Charleston uh, a couple of months after that. And, uh, great run. I absolutely love that city. We talk about it quite a bit, actually. We miss Charleston. We miss the people, the restaurants. I miss that ballpark. I, I'm spoiled now. I know that, but it was home for so long, and it, it still really is home. You know, a quarter of my life spent in Charleston, West Virginia. And more than 800 power baseball games called as the voice of the West Virginia Power as Adam Marco joins us here on Expanding the Grid. Now, you had, I'm sure, numerous, numerous memories from your time in Charleston, West Virginia. Is there one in particular during your time working with the power that kind of stands out above the rest to you? That's tough. <laughs> Honestly, that that is very difficult to, to try to pinpoint one. I think I could look at each season or every couple of years and boil it down to a few, but I'm just not sure that you can take so many fond memories, so many experiences, good and bad, quite honestly, <laughs> that you process and you, you pick one. I, I don't know if I could. You and I talk for a living. We don't shut up. That's true. <laughs> so getting, getting me to limit it to one thing out of <laughs> eight years is is downright absurd, quite honestly. Well, uh, yeah, well, let, let, let's start at the beginning. Let's start Let's start in 2010 and, and kind of go through the first couple of years and, and, and see what pop, pops to memory. I, I think what stands out to me, and I can boil it down a little bit, there are certain games or certain time frames that really speak volumes to me. I mean, I remember players more than anything else that stand out you know, over 
so many years of calling games. You know, I remember the near no hitter for Ryan McPherson. I think we made it what, eight and a third or eight and two thirds before we didn't get that no hitter. Uh, it was a school day games, back to back school day games in 2010, May 24th, 25th ish. Uh, it's my birthday. It's hardly how I remember it. Um, but then a couple of years later, having a couple of no hitters in one season, seeing a team lose a one to nothing no hitter. How about that one? <laughs> seeing the Rail Riders fall to Hagerstown in a seven inning no hit bid and lose one to nothing. Just memories like that, the losses stand out. It's like if you've seen the movie Rounders, poker players remember their losses and you don't remember the wins. I remember a couple of wins, certainly. Uh, getting to the postseason when we did in 2013 with Bell and Glasnow, getting back in 2015 with the greatest team I've ever seen play and the guys that were on that roster, uh, it's bound to come up sooner rather than later. You know, Cole Tucker has always been one of my favorites. He and uh, myself and the Toastman, that is, are yeah. huge Cole Tucker fans. Yep. Um, it, it stands out to me, the players, maybe more than anything else, that, you know, I love the way Cole played the game and the limited amount of time, and as I think about it, that I really got to watch him play. It was a little more than a half season and then a couple of weeks a year later. But seeing Tucker and Josh Bell, seeing Gregory Polanco coming up in 2012, Polanco wasn't supposed to be the star on that team. It was supposed to be Alan Hansen. But we had Polanco, Hansen, Will Garcia, Jose Osuna. Those are guys that could have formulated uh, absolutely lights-out, murderer's row kind of offense for the Pirates if they had all come to fruition together at the same time. But Polanco was amazing to watch. I've seen very few players over the years that get out of that left-handed box and down to first base in the strides that he took. That was something that stood out to me for a guy that he's a complimentary player. He's a nice kid. He's going to be something, but we don't know what yet. And he turned out to be one of the best players in the South Atlantic League that year. So those are the memories that, that stick with me. Now, is there a certain game or two? Maybe. Uh, but not necessarily for a win or a loss, but more for a moment or something that happened in the game. I remember trips around the South Atlantic League uh, just as much as I would remember any uh, player. You know, the opportunities to go fl to places I love, places I didn't, uh, and the memories that that created. And, and I know that, you know, getting to work with so many different players is, is and get to meet them and create relationships is one huge perk of being a broadcaster and working for a minor league baseball team. But for you, I feel like it was a little bit extra special because you are a Pittsburgh Pirates fan and your entire tenure working in West Virginia, the power were affiliated with the Pittsburgh Pirates. So not only were you getting to know these players on a personal level, you were seeing the players that were going to be a part of your team that you that you know represents a part of your fandom uh, for, for the rest of your life. Much like the city of Pittsburgh, it was a confluence of events to get me there. I grew up a Dodgers fan. Oh, really? In the 80s, okay. I loved Oral Hershiser, Kirk Gibson, yeah. Uh, Fernando Mania, I absolutely loved the L.A. Dodgers when I was a kid. And I despised the Pirates 
I, they were the hometown team, but I didn't like them. All my friends were big Pirates fans. And we would go to Three Rivers Stadium, and the story I would tell every year, Memorial Day, I think it was 1990, there was a bean brawl war between the Pirates and Dodgers. And we left after the top of the ninth inning because the Dodgers were winning 5-1. to one. I was flying high, and then... We're riding back, and then the back of my friend's parents' minivan, listening to the game, listening to Lanny for Terry call it. And the Pirates came back and won it in a walk-off before we even really knew what walk-offs were. I grew into loving the Pirates. Like, 98 home run chase. You could go down, you could get to the outfield for, like, 8 bucks, 10 bucks when McGuire and Sosa were in town. I interned in Pittsburgh the summers after that and got to see PNC Park get built and take in games there. I wrote a research paper about how the Pirates could never compete. <laughs> it's a small market team, which for like 20-something years oh, stood my. out. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, but that same summer when I wrote that paper, they were in it until the last week of the season. I think 97 when Houston went to the postseason instead of Pittsburgh. They almost proved me wrong. And that being said, grew into loving the Pirates. The 2013 wildcard game is one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had at a sporting event. I've been to some Steelers AFC championship games. I've been to Stanley Cup playoff and finals games. And that wildcard game, the, the season coming the, the way it did, coming together the way it did, and the Pirates making it, the Cueto game, just all of that together, one of the most chilling experiences on a positive side when it comes to baseball that I've ever experienced. So I grew into loving the team and really in the last 20 years of adulthood that, that I've become the Pirates fan. And so, yes, to your question, seeing these players, seeing these guys get to Pittsburgh and seeing guys that you would have loved to see excel in Pittsburgh, thinking of like Austin Meadows and Tyler Glasnow, Seeing them thrive for other organizations, it it's special because I had the opportunity to watch them as they were young, as they were coming up through the system. Now, they're your star players. They're guys that never quite made it to the majors that stand out to me. That you know, we talk about Cole Tucker and the great kid that he is, greatest kid ever, as I call him. I know Toastman will agree with me. Right up there is John Schwint who is now a coach in the Pirates system. And I got to see John last year when Indianapolis came to town and when I went out to Indianapolis and seeing guys like John who sat right behind me on the bus and I was listening to him plan his wedding basically during those road trips. Seeing those guys make it to the majors or in some cases catching up with them again down the line. You know, when I go to Indy, I always make the trip to the clubhouse and you know, seeing Alex McCray and Austin Coley, um, Jeff Hartley, seeing those guys, even just from the last couple of years, that it really stands out. It, it brings a smile to faces that you have that camaraderie with players. I don't fraternize much with them, but there are a certain few that I really do appreciate what they are as a player, but more so what they are as an individual away from the field. And I know the one that stands out above the rest to you in terms of a person is Cole Tucker. You've mentioned him a couple of times. Uh, we talked about this last year in written form a little bit, but 
what did it mean to you when Cole Tucker got his promotion to Pittsburgh and had the performance he had in his big league debut? I love him as a person. And he plays the game with such passion and such excitement and energy that it's one of the players that I wish more people knew about, more people could follow, knew how to follow, and you know, we want to make more Pirates fans for everybody if, if that's the case. But, you know, just because of how he approaches the game and what his attitude is. And I, I mentioned this last year when we talked. It's a personal story for me that we had some tragedy. We had a tragedy in my family in 2015. We lost my mother-in-law to cancer. And I never told anybody that story. But somehow he knew about it. He heard about it. And when he came back in 2016, uh, basically on a rehab, working his way back from the labrum injury, he asked me how my family was doing. And that speaks volumes to me about the type of person he is, because I never told that story. I certainly wouldn't have talked about it. It's just too personal for me, especially the year that it happened, too personal for my family. And to have him, you know, it was his first day back playing a game the next day. It was Mother's Day 2016, the night before, in fact, that I saw him. And first thing he said to me is, how's your family? How's your sister-in-law, who at the time was 16 years old? So, you know, just that mentality, that type of person, it's something I like a lot about the Pirates, and I've worked for other organizations in my career. The Pirates and their attention to the man, maybe not the player, but the man and the type of person that somebody's going to be, Cole is you know, top to bottom the epitome of what they're looking for. And well, having worked in the Phillies, Rangers, Yankees organizations, I know your time, you know, with the White Sox and now the Mariners systems. That you know, you'd, I think we all see different things about how players approach community service and community relations when they're in a town. I think the Pirates did that very well in their stay in West Virginia. And it's guys like Tucker and Schwind that, that really, uh, Seth McGarry and Daniel Zamora, who were inseparable when they would go on community appearances. It's guys like that that stand out to me. Um, seeing Cole Excel, seeing him rise to the top was fantastic. I actually took my birthday weekend off last year my wife made me. It was my 40th birthday. We went to Pittsburgh. We went to a Pirates game. Not calling baseball. What do I do? I still go to a game anyway. <laughs> Not surprisingly, said game was delayed two hours by rain. Because why wouldn't it be? Right. Um, and I didn't know if I should go down. Players were coming out at like 8.30 to stretch, get ready. I didn't know if I should go down. Everybody's crowding, trying to get autographs. What the heck? I walked down. Cole's there running. He ran away. He didn't see I was standing there. I yelled out for him like I'm, you know, basically a fan. Right. <laughs> Nothing else but a fan. <laughs> he ran over. He hugged me. He talked to me for two or three minutes. Uh, it, it just speaks volumes to the kind of, kind of kid he is, and I want more players to be like that. Adam Marco joining us here on Expanding the Grid. Now, one of the, the things that I think stands out to me about your time in West Virginia is the fact that you essentially, you know, added a thousand and one things to your plate. 
from 2010 to the end of the 2017 season, which was your last in Charleston. Uh, just going to talk about your progression, you know, in the power front office and all the different things that you ended up handling as you kind of ascended the ladder in the power organization. When I got the job, when Andy Milovich hired me, it was very clear to me that to him, I was a group salesperson who got to broadcast the games. I heard it differently. I heard it flipped. I was the broadcaster who had to do group sales. And it's the progression for a lot of people in minor league baseball. You know, if you want to justify having a full-time job, if you're going to be a year-round employee, then you have to expand your abilities. You have to be able to do multiple things and sometimes multiple things all at once. So taking on media relations, the broadcast and group sales that first year, not an issue. The progression for a lot of people is you have group sales to sponsorship sales. And that took place really over the next two or three years. That first, second year, you know, I was trying to make my money as best I could on school days and field of dreams. And then starting to work up to thousand person picnics and legends clubs and uh, things along those lines. And it just progressed to the point where I was involved in a lot of things. The end of the 2013 season, Kristen call left for Myrtle beach. Andy Milovich had gone a year prior and he poached her to come down to Myrtle. And Kristen was our marketing director for my whole tenure there at that point and did such a phenomenal job knowing the community. And so I picked up a lot from her, but even with that, I was still helping craft the message with Kristen. And when uh, I took on the marketing role in 2014, it was, I'm already doing this much of it. I think I can do the rest. So adding that to my plate, adding the marketing role for the power and trying to get more people to Appalachian power park. And we had a couple of really great years where attendance would rise and, we all know the strengths and weaknesses of a minor league baseball schedule and whether or not withstanding. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose when it comes to that. We had some fun promotions. That was a part of the marketing role there. So it just added layer upon layer and trying to figure out how to get things done on a daily basis. Uh, my time management was put to the task quite a bit. I was also very fortunate to have some great interns and assistants over the years uh, that helped in community relations. So, you know, Caitlin Parsons and Jordan Pence, uh, Jordan Farrell now, um, Haley Townsend. I'm probably going to forget people, but, you know, Hannah Frenchick from the ticketing and merch side when Hannah was there. Uh, the interns that I had on the broadcast side. Jake Corrigan, Mike Baggerman, Greg Wong, Steve Granato, Chip Sampson, the guys that I worked with uh, in the booth helped me get to the point where I was. You know, I, I wish all of them well. I know some of them are still in baseball. Some have moved on. But it's the people in that office that helped me do what I was doing, helped me get where I was. And I have to thank each and every one of them. And, and certainly uh, – guy that's still there running the show now jeremy taylor yeah. has has been influential in my career 
in so many ways that I can't even tell him thank you. You were you you touched on my next my next point is our our general manager Jeremy Taylor obviously has been there since the beginning of the West Virginia Power. He has lived, breathed, and will probably eventually die with the West Virginia Power because he is a Charleston lifer and uh is now, you know, and and is now and forever will be the biggest proponent of this team in Charleston. So I, I kind of wanted to just touch on your relationship with him and uh, you know, and any any I know you have some stories about Jeremy Taylor. Uh, if there's if there's any you want to share, uh, feel free because I, I know I know he's I know he's got you you two have plenty of memories together. We certainly do, and you know JT. He was an acquired personality <laughs> at first. Uh, I, I think we on the exterior are two different people, but I think it worked well in the rapport that we had with each other. Um, as long as I remembered to take earplugs when going to the winter meetings and rooming with him, everything was fine. Um, Jeremy is a riot. Absolutely. One of the funniest people that I know. Uh, one of the most, endearing people I've ever come across in baseball as well, because when you take a minute to get to know him and you understand the passion that he has, not just for minor league baseball, but for baseball in Charleston, West Virginia, it blows you away. And I certainly think that there could be opportunities for him in other cities with other teams. I don't know how things would survive without him. I mean, he is, he's truly for, 15 years, maybe more so now than before, obviously, but he's the lifeblood of that team, of that organization. Um, the number of times we've been out, um, whether it's at winter meetings, whether it's at the ballpark post game, just hanging out together, his, his friendship means a lot to me. We still text each other. A couple of times a month, I think. Sometimes more, sometimes a little less, depending on the season. Um, we bounce ideas off each other, and that's that collaboration is what makes that organization great. And it it stems from him right now. And he's had people that he's learned from, like Andy Milovich and Ryan Gates and Tim Mueller, Ken Fogel, people he's learned from over the years to take on that role. Uh, but I think there's no greater ambassador. Uh, I I don't know. Again, a story. Um, I love eating. I think we've established this. I like food. Yes. My minor league Kerouac days. Absolutely. Uh, When we went to Nashville for the winter meetings, JT and I had to, had to try Nashville hot chicken together. And so we went to Hattie B's and got a little overwhelmed by some of the heat there. Um, (laughs) Going, you know, going downtown in Nashville at the winter meetings there or uh, getting the bone marrow down at the at the yacht club at, when the meetings are in Orlando uh, and, and trying things like that uh, always stand out. You know, I've been gone a couple of off seasons now. And even still, when we go to the winter meetings, that's who I hang out with. <laughs> that's the person that I spend my time with. Uh, just because it's 
so rare now the opportunity to hang out with Jeremy. So he's truly been a friend and um, a mentor in a lot of aspects when it comes to baseball and how things should be done. Let's talk a little minor league Kerouac because I, I one of the first things I saw when I took uh, took over for you in the off season of of 2017 into the 2018 season was the minor league Kerouac blog and the the and then into the season the posts that you would have about different food that you were trying and and the different stories that you had from your time as a as the broadcaster and the media relations guy and the head of marketing for the power. So where did that idea start for you? How how did that kind of come about and and how has it kind of evolved over the years? It started out really as a blog about baseball, the stories that I couldn't necessarily tell in a post-game wrap-up or couldn't work into a broadcast or sometimes still work into a broadcast, but if you didn't hear it, you missed it. So how do I take that information and translate it? So it was initially it was more about the travels, a little bit about the food, but more about the travels and with the team and you know, there are certain aspects of these road trips that I don't want to say are privileged or sacred, but there's certain things you can't do. You can't say, you can't repeat. I learned that lesson my very first year. It was a mistake I made in 2007. I think I violated that code of trust and I apologize. And I, I was forgiven for what I, what I had said. And it was just an offhand comment that I took and utilized on air. I think we all have some capacity to make that mistake, but it was a learning experience then. So parsing down some stuff and, you know, when you go to Greenville, South Carolina, and right across the street from Floor Field is the Joe Jackson Museum, the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum. So when we went down there one year, I set up a tour. Myself, Pat Ludwig, a couple other players, and that was an experience that I could write about that I could talk about on the air because, you know, it's a public setting. It's, there's nothing about it. Like talking about what, what do you see from Joe Jackson? What does that mean to you? It was telling those stories, but I also given a, an envelope of money as a per diem. And most of the places we go, typically they'll feed you some capacity, whether it's, a press box spread or, you know, here's a voucher to go down and get your hot dog, something along those lines. So breakfast and lunch, that's what per diem was really used for. And I would always try to find what is the flavor of this city? What is the best dish I could find? And for a few years, it was, you know, a specific thing. Like what's the best sandwich in the South Atlantic league. And then a year later, Oh, we have pretty good barbecue. What's the best barbecue in the South Atlantic League? And I'd kind of rank them against each other. A couple of years into it and adding the marketing role, I started to get bogged down with things, and the blog suffered because of it. I brought it back basically as a food tweet. So I I go to a restaurant now, and I tweet out my dish, and I rate it. And it's very much like whose line is it anyway? Points made up, the scores don't matter. <laughs> it's really just a rough approximation of where I think this stands in the pantheon of food. So I, there, there have been some dogs. <laughs> there have been some dishes that I had where I'm like, yeah, that's a four. But 
there have also been some amazing stops along the way. So that's really where it morphed, where it turned. Uh, it's so much easier for me to handle 140 characters and a picture. And I've thought about bringing the blog aspect back and doing some things with that. So it's still out there. It's still in the back of my mind, but at the least on my Twitter, if I'm out at a place, even, even if it's not during the season, I still use my hashtag minor league Kerouac and a good friend of mine from the baseball industry, Amy Venuto. It's like, you know, that it's not just about food, right? Fair enough. So when I went to see one of the Avengers Marvel movies, tweeted that minor league Kerouac. If I get to play golf at Beth page black or something along those lines with my friend, minor league Kerouac, these are parts of the travel uh, of the road. That is the life of a minor league baseball broadcaster, at least my road. So where, where was the, the name minor league Kerouac? How did you kind of devise that name for this all encompassing blog, food posting, rating, et cetera, et cetera. Stole it from Jack Kerouac uh, from On the Road. Now, my first year traveling, I didn't travel the first few years in West Virginia. It wasn't until 2013 that I had convinced them that I could sell and broadcast games and do things okay, that I didn't have to be in the office the entire time. So that's when the blog initially started and getting on the road, telling that story. Um, so that's really where it stemmed from. On the road, Jack Kerouac, minor league Kerouac. Adam Marco joining us here on Expanding the Grid. Uh, I, I'm curious to know because I know you were very much involved in the creating several promotions for this team that are you know, you know, now annual traditions. Is there one that sticks out in your mind that either you were a part of or you helped bring to the table that is your favorite promotion that was brought to Charleston, West Virginia? Well, I know after year five of Redneck Night, I was pretty much tapped out on it. So <laughs> I'm glad it's back and doing well. Yeah. And that was a brainchild of Andy and Kristen and Jeremy. And when I inherited it for year three, it, it just it had a different life by that point. Ooh. Some of the bobbleheads that we've done, uh, the... 1979 celebration with Omar Moreno getting inducted onto the wall of fame and the championship ring replica. It's when we unveiled those yellow power jerseys. Okay. The replicas of the Pirates 79. Uh, right around that time that we did the uh, Mazeroski bobblehead and brought in the sleeveless power jerseys, a la the 60 Pirates with the striped stirrup socks. In fact, I remember we were wearing those jerseys in 2015, the night we clinched the playoff spot. Uh, so promotions like that. I have a fairly stout bobblehead collection because of my time in West Virginia. You certainly do. I've seen back. it. It's pretty It's pretty impressive. Uh, I look back at those, and I'm able to use those to reminisce about uh, some of the great promotions and themes we've had. Those are probably the ones that stand out to me the most just because – it allows me to bring that Pirates fandom to life in Charleston, West Virginia at the time. If there is a place like 
the next time you come back to Charleston, West Virginia, is there a, a place that stands out to you in particular that you'd be like, I have to go here first to eat a meal? Where would I go if we went back to Charleston, West Virginia to eat a meal? Um, okay. So the first place was actually, it was in the mall when we first moved to Charleston. And they closed their stand in the food court. And we were, we bought a house on the west side and they had a little shop right around the corner. It's the best of Crete, the uh, Greek gyro, Euro. Uh, that would be the first place I would go. Um, pies and pints, black sheep, uh, Lola's is still around. Yep. Love Lola's. Yep. Uh, Bluegrass Kitchen was on the list. There were a lot of places that we loved. Uh, Soho's at Capital Market. Uh, it's Charleston is a sneaky good culinary city. It really is. Uh, it, it, it having seen all of these other places, having gone out and eaten, you know, everywhere. Um, it, Charleston is sneaky good when it comes down to places that you can go and get a delicious meal, a great meal in the city of Charleston. Um, my wife was actually just in the room and she like, she whispered to me, pies and pines. <laughs> and I, I know the answer. I know her answer is that, but for me, I start with the Greek restaurant and then move on to pies and pines or Adelphia or places like that. So I have to throw in a story here quickly about pies and pints, uh, a good friend uh, now of mine. And I know of yours, Joel Swisher, uh, and I now have an annual, a twice annual tradition, once before the season, once after the season, to go to Pies and Pints and just have lunch. Um, and he is the one who introduced me to the Pies and Pints wings. I had only had pizza there beforehand. And Joel, the first time we went, said, you have to have these wings. I was like, all right, we'll get the wings, fine. Um, and I can't not have them anymore because of because of Joel introducing them to me and saying like, this is the thing at pies and pines, which is hilarious because it's a pizza place, but I have to get the wings now every single time. We loved a lot of the, the pies there. Uh, that's also the place where I first had a Lambic, the Lindemann's Framboise, which is a weird acquired kind of tart taste. Okay. Uh, but now I buy I that's something I could buy by the bottle and I don't drink much. I could finish that off without even blinking. Huh. Just it, it, it's that good. And you mix it with one of their pies, you mix it with uh, the grape pie or the chicken gouda. Yep. And both both things will disappear very quickly if you put them in front of me. <laughs> the chicken gouda is absolutely a staple. Um, I did want to find this out because I know obviously you had eight years of experiencing the Toastman, and you you and him obviously have a shared love of of power baseball, Cole Tucker, and 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 the Pittsburgh Pirates. What was your first impression of the Toastman when you first met him and got to experience his antics? So I inherited his season ticket contract oh. when I got there in 2010. And I'm guessing I inherited it from Bull. Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. But I got his season ticket contract along with a few others when I first started there. So that was my first indoctrination to him, was helping him with season tickets. 
I've always described him as a heckler. I don't know if you would disagree, but he is the most educated and passionate heckler you will ever meet. Yes. His, his ability to do research is better than any broadcaster I've ever met. <laughs> the knowledge he brings about these players is it's next level in depth. And I love that about him. I appreciate his passion. And a lot of people like, oh, that's terrible. How can you encourage that? Why do you let him do that? You have to, I think it's acquired, yes. But when you understand what the game of baseball, what the Pirates, and really what the city of Charleston means to him and supporting the hometown team, I think it changes perspective. I think you understand that, you know, first pitch to final out, He's going to get on those players and, and really try to get them out of their zone. And he and I have talked about it multiple times over the years. If for just a split second you think about what he just said rather than what you're supposed to do next, he won. Yep. <laughs> it benefited the team. The behind-the-scenes parts where, you know, after when we had the Power Alley Grill, after a game was over, if a player was interested, he'd buy dinner. And he talked to them about baseball and talked to them about their careers. The minute that game ended, he was their biggest fan. He would travel around. He'd make an annual pilgrimage down to Florida to go to spring training to see former players. And not just former power players, but guys that went up against the Toastman and won. And he, you know, Anthony Goes, I know, is one of his all-time favorites uh, from the other side, you know the rapport he has with these players, once they realize that he is a genuinely wonderful person and cares so much about baseball, I will acknowledge that the first few years I would get distracted by him because hmm. he is not that far away from the broadcast booth. And you'd hear what he, I'm like, did he just say what? Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> yep. Repeated it. Yep. By year, like five, six, seven, it, it it was a blur. I was able to tune it all out. But this first few years, uh, and anytime he comes up with some new material, it always kind of catches you. A um, couple of years back, actually two years ago, Rod was passing through, and we had former power catcher Francisco Diaz on our Rail Riders roster. We got rained out one night. Rod was going to come to a game. Instead, we ended up going out to a restaurant, Toastman, myself, and Francisco Diaz having dinner and reminiscing and talking about baseball. It, the, the passion he has for the game always blows me away. My favorite Toastman story, and I, I can't pinpoint other stories, but I can give you this one. We're playing the Lexington Legends, and their manager, Omar Ramirez, I believe, it's a day game. The wind was blowing in from the toast section and the smoke was getting into the left-handed hitter's eyes. The umpires stopped the game, came over and told Toastman to unplug the toaster. He did, but I really wish, like, I was at that point advocating, like, no, absolutely keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to eject you from this ballpark. Right. How much of a, 
how much of a great story could that possibly be if you get ejected from the ballpark? Like, that just brings your aura to the next level. He obliged. He stopped burning the toast that day. But it just – he tries to get into players' heads. That time he got into the manager's head, and and it really just – it made me laugh because – this is what we were worried about. We're not worried about fastball change-up curves. We're worried about the toast man and what he's doing. And it made me laugh, and I really wish he would have gotten tossed from the game. That, <laughs> that, that is one of the toast man stories I have not heard, but that is, that's tremendous. I, uh, I, I certainly wish he would have been thrown out as well because that would have been a story for the ages of the toast man's 30-plus years as a heckler, as I I think you aptly describe him as a as a true true heckler, but uh, a a heckler with a heart uh, at his at his core. Um, as as Adam Marco joins us here on expanding the go wrapping things up here with him, I, I'm curious to to know from you, how did you first just you know figure out that you wanted to work in radio and to do sports broadcasting? What, what was there like a defining moment, or was it just you kind of always knew you wanted to do it? When I was in high school, I was in performing arts. I was in theater, choir. Um, I come from a very musical family, so we've always been on stage, per se. Uh, My mom was a music teacher, church choir, ran a community band. Uh, My sisters were in marching band in high school. So always musical, always on, basically, when when it came down to it. My freshman year at Mercyhurst College, I went to school thinking I was going to be a serious journalist. And look at me now. Um, <laughs> three days into my freshman year, my work study was at the radio station. It was a Friday night. I picked up like a six to eight shift because, you know, I'm a freshman and nobody else wants to do that shift on a Friday night. I walked in, like the person ahead of me is like, all right, have a good night. Wait, what? What, what do I do? What do I say? What do I... What button do I hit? I, and they gave me a five-minute crash course on how to be a radio DJ. And I'm sure it was awful. <laughs> but that year, I started doing women's basketball for Mercyhurst. I inherited the men's broadcast shortly thereafter. I was doing baseball by the end of my freshman year. Football, hockey, any sport Mercyhurst had that we broadcast, I was doing it by my sophomore year. I ran the radio station my sophomore year, I was the music director my junior year, ran the radio station again my senior year. Out of school, I was a country music DJ doing overnights, but basically, as many young broadcasters are now, have voice, will travel. And I fell in love with broadcasting games, and I found that I had the ability to do it. I had the ability to think on the fly, to spin a phrase, um, somewhat witty from time to time and that just kind of developed year after year to the point where I was able to leave a full-time job in radio and take that first internship with the Williamsport Crosscutters. So left a job making an illustrious like $24,000 a year to be a $500 a month intern. But I knew it was something that I had to give that shot and try. And I don't, I don't regret any step along the way 
It got me to where I am today. It, it helped me meet the people that I've met along the way to even just get to this point. And I didn't necessarily, I wasn't like the kid in, in high school or when I was young, like, I want to be a broadcaster. It didn't hit me. My earliest memories of baseball broadcasting are my grandfather. He it was retired. He would cut the grass during the day, and then he'd be laying on his glider on the front porch listening to this brown transistor radio and listening to Bob Prince and Lanny Terry and the Pirates play. And those are my earliest memories of baseball and broadcasting together. And I think that stands out to me. It was really just over time building up to an opportunity. I love broadcasting football and basketball. Baseball was the sport I played along with soccer as a child. Soccer is about the only thing that I could think now that if I had an opportunity to go to another sport, that would be one that would jump to me. Just I have a passion for that sport as well. So that's really the shortened version of my lineage to get from what button do I push back in 1997 to uh, what button do I push in 2020? <laughs> well, you have certainly had uh, quite the storied career, and uh, I-, I will say that uh, it is it a week does not go by, if not a day, uh, where you are not mentioned in some capacity here in Charleston, West Virginia. Your your lineage certainly lives on uh, here in the power the power office, uh, the city of Charleston, and the state of West Virginia. So uh, I I did. Want, I, I did just want to, you know, let you know that uh, you are certainly uh, missed from afar, but celebrated that you continue to take the next step in your career and, and are enjoying yourself up in Scranton. Uh, but you all, Charleston still considers uh, themselves your home and you are uh, you are certainly missed down here in the capital city. Uh, those are incredibly kind words. I assume that at least twice. Per month, when my name is said, it is said in vain, and that is quite all right. <laughs> I no comment. take this opportunity. <laughs> I miss uh, I miss Charleston, West Virginia, quite a bit. Uh, wouldn't change anything, mind you, but the city and the friends that we have in Charleston still to this day um, mean more to my wife, my family, and I than anything, quite possibly anything else in the world. Now, I, I do have to ask you about one thing completely off topic from what we were just discussing, because I, I, I sincerely think you will have a fantastic opinion on this if you've seen it. Have you watched Tiger King? I have not. Okay. My wife is watching it now. I have not picked it up yet. Uh, in the last month, I have certainly taken in some television. Yes. I finished the West Wing for like the ninth or tenth time. <laughs> I watched the entire second season of Jack Ryan. Uh, I've watched the last two Avengers movies again. Yep. Uh, yesterday I watched Driven, the Jason Sudeikis, John DeLorean movie from a couple of years ago. I've taken in a couple of movies and shows. I'm starting to rewatch Scrubs. I'm rewatching Brooklyn Nine Nine. I didn't make it the whole way through. I know Modern Family just ended. Yep. I got to get back on that. Uh, but no, I have not watched Tiger King yet. All right. Well, when you do, I would love to hear your opinion on it because knowing you and knowing who you are, 
I cannot wait to hear the extended, uncut version of your thoughts on that show and the entire crazy situation that it presented in our country that was in a small part of Oklahoma and a smaller part of Miami. Because it is absolutely wild, and I know you will have many thoughts on it. Tell you what, I will go ahead, I will watch it, I will record some thoughts and send them your way in the near future. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Adam, thanks so much for the time. You we can appreciate it. it as much as you need to. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Adam, I, I appreciate the time, man. It is always good to catch up with you and talk with you. Uh, all the best to you, uh, your wife, and your family and in staying safe and uh, hopefully the next time we are chatting uh, baseball is on the horizon again David the same to you tell all um, my friends the family down there at Appalachian Power Park I hope they're doing well uh, to your listeners stay safe we will get through this baseball will be back it is nowhere near the most important thing right now let's take care of each other and let's get through this Couldn't have said it better myself. That is Adam Marco, the former voice of the West Virginia Power and the current voice of the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Row Riders. We'll be back with more here on Expanding the Grid right after this. It's been an absolute pleasure to relive the history of the West Virginia Power with both Andy the Bull Barch and Adam Marco over the past couple of weeks. Two outstanding broadcasters and even better people that certainly left a lasting impression on the city of Charleston. Coming up next, we turn our attention to live baseball action. Yes, live baseball as we welcome in Nick Kingham, a 2012 Power player who's now in South Korea playing with the SK Wyverns of the Korean Baseball League. Certainly cannot wait to share all of the intriguing anecdotes Nick had to offer during our interview with all of you. Until then, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you may be listening to your podcasts. And if you don't mind, rate us and leave us a review. It really does help the podcast grow and allow us to bring you more fresh content as often as we can. That's going to do it for us here today, though. For Adam Marco, this is David Kahn saying so long. And thanks for listening to another episode of Expanding the Grid. (laughs) 